Welcome uh, to welcome to Death and Resurrection of uh, the Messiah, the class. Um, glad you all are here. I'm. I was just telling Betsy. I, I don't know why. I'm just feeling very encouraged this morning. Uh, really happy. Uh, really happy to get to come to a specific place with a specific group of people and worship and and uh, build relationships. I've just been feeling really great uh, about that. And has anyone? Has anyone felt the Spirit move in a way this week that they would like to share or possibly even a scripture or something that they noticed that happened this past week? It's a really broad question. I know, it is broad. But I mean, it's like you could say anything right now and I think, I think it, would, it would work. <laughs> I've been trying to memorize scripture, and this week um, it was Colossians 3, um, and it is, since then, um, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above, set your hearts on things above and not on earthly things, for you died and your body is now hidden with Christ in God. So it's just, this doesn't, it matters, but it doesn't, like, set, set your mind on, earth, on heavenly things. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I don't know if anyone went to first service, but I think what Josh spoke about this morning, it really works with our video today, um, especially with Jesus coming from Nazareth. It's just going to be something that I think works very well. So if you're going to second service, get ready. It's really great. Um, all right. I will start us off with the announcements, and then I think uh, Betsy's going to read our scripture and say a prayer. Uh, the family news, we have a, today a discovery lunch from 12.15 to 2 p.m., Although Eric just said that that was on the 28th. I'm not entirely sure which of those is correct, but if today. it is today. Okay, good. Today, if you are wanting to learn a little bit about Otter Creek, they provide a catered lunch, uh, and you can go to that. It's in the gym, and that's from 12.15 to 2 p.m. It's a really awesome time, and there's banana pudding, which is also a, a plus. <laughs> Although I think sometimes the office uh, workers, or the staff, like they get the leftovers if it doesn't get eaten. So they like that as well or maybe they just order more um, child care is provided um, on August 18th the living water project dinner it's a Thursday it starts 6 30 p.m. in the OC gym register online at livingwaterwells.org backslash 2016 dinner um, and the OC consignment sale still needs volunteers so you can register online uh, at ottercreeksale.org and uh, that those are some great ways to uh, volunteer as well. Um, yeah, so Betsy, you want to come up and research? I think you guys are really going to like the video today. Brett and I have watched it like three times. Twice. I, I twice. You three times. I, I'm a note taker and it's like every time I've watched this, it's like, I didn't even hear that the first time, so get your pins out because it's really good. Anyway, our scripture is from Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. <clears throat> but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God, thank you so much for this day and for your presence, and thank you for the testimony of everyone in this room. Just being here um, is a testimony of their faith. Um, pray that we all are encouraged um, with each other's presence. Thank you for your presence here. I pray that um, we learn something from this video 
and that we are able to share it with others and bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. I forgot to mention last week, so we have a, we record all the audio from every classroom and then we put it up on the website, but last week we said hi to Brittany because Brittany is the one that takes all the audio and puts it on the Otter Creek website. And we said hi. Hi, Brittany again. We're all hi, here. Brittany. Hey. <laughs> but she actually came in during the week and wrote us a note. <laughs> Uh, so hi everybody and, and have a great class. So that was that was a nice sentiment. But uh, yeah, so we are gonna do this video and all the selfies of the family. If someone could get the lights, that would be awesome. <coughs> the ancient land of Israel is a testimony and evidence of the greatness of what God did in that country. A testimony to the truth of the words that we find in the pages of the Bible. On the night before he died, Jesus went with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane in that culture meant olive press. There's no olive press today in the Garden of Gethsemane. But there is one, in fact, there are many in the town of Capernaum, the town where Jesus lived during his three-year ministry. That olive press, I believe, came to symbolize the weight, the weight that Jesus carried, the weight that Jesus felt as he went to the cross. to the ruins, the town of Capernaum. Capernaum comes from two Hebrew words, kafar, meaning village or town, small village, and Nahum, like the prophet Nahum. It's a town of about a thousand to maybe fifteen hundred people in the New Testament time, and it was the place Jesus chose as his town, Matthew says in Matthew 9 verse 1, and he did a large share of his ministry right here. You notice the unique kind of color here with the black basalt rock that distinguishes the towns in Galilee, different from the places in Judea we've been seeing. One of the main things of significance in this town, you can look right over to this side and see the remains of a synagogue. The synagogue actually dates to the third or fourth century, sometime after Jesus. But as you look closely, you'll notice that below the limestone, the lighter colored limestone, you'll see the dark basalt. And most of the uh, scholars believe that the original synagogue from Jesus' time is right below the remains of this one, and therefore probably followed pretty much the shape this one does, the outline this one does. And by looking at it, you at least get an idea of what the synagogue was like, though you need to know that's not an original. That's why we went to Gamla to see the synagogue, because the Gamla synagogue was there in Jesus' time. This one was not, although the base was. When Jesus had finished teaching this, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant. Now, why would a centurion be in Capernaum? Well, the reason is this city controls the Via Maris. So we would expect a Roman garrison to be here because there were tolls to collect, and there, this was kind of like a district headquarters. So there's a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him and asked him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, said Jesus' Jewish neighbors. 
because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So interestingly, the synagogue over here, according to the Bible, was built by the centurion who was in charge of the Roman affairs here. Now, whether he was a believer in God or not is very difficult to say, but at the very least, we can say that the synagogue was built by the centurion, and that made the people of the town love him, and therefore, they wanted Jesus to heal his sick servant. Jesus does, of course, and he was amazed, he says to the crowd, at the faith of this non-Jewish Roman centurion. Also from this town, the disciples Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew came. So we can say that five of the twelve came from this town. Matthew, in particular, a tax collector, who probably sat in a booth of some kind along the Via Mars and collected the taxes. This is the town that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, pronounces a curse on. Let me read it to you. Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles have been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this time. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, what scares me about that curse is that I'm the Capernaum of today. I've heard it all. I've heard every miracle of Jesus. I've seen his hand in your lives and in the lives of other people. And when you've seen Jesus in action, not to respond is an extremely serious thing. And the strongest curses in the Bible are not for the most evil people, but for the people who are evil who know better. This is olive-producing country. Now, the olive is very important for the economy of this country today. It was even more important probably in the Bible times. The olive was not only food, but it was the oil they used in their lamps. It was the only lubricating oil. It was the only preserving agent, the skin carried. I mean, they used it for almost everything that we would use petroleum or some kind of salve for. They used olive oil, so it's an extremely important uh, part of their economy. Now, one of the main industries of this town was the use or and the construction of these. Notice the kind of rock. It's called basalt. It's very porous and extremely hard. And you find these large basalt instruments in almost every archaeological dig that's done all the way across the country. They have this kind of equipment in it, which may have come, must have come from the Galilee, because that's where you find basalt. So this town, in some ways, you could say, was like the General Motors for crushers. It was a leading industry of this town. When you finally got the olives, here's how you process them. You put the olives in this sea, it's called, yam, sea, like the Sea of Galilee, sea. And then you take this large millstone with a stick through it, like this, fastened to a post in the middle. And you would have a donkey or an animal grab a hold of the end of that stick and walk in a circle so that this huge stone rolled in here on the olives. You might walk around there for a few minutes, just rolling those olives. And what that would do to those black olives that were ripe is it would crack them. When they're finished cracking these olives, they scoop them up and they put them into a bag. It looks a little bit like a burlap bag. They bring them over to this instrument, large stone column here, which they then lift up, and they stack those bags of olives down here on this base. And then they set this large stone pillar back down on the olives, and they leave it stand there. 
as that enormous weight begins to set down heavily on those olives. After a few minutes, that very precious oil begins to drip down into this groove and down into the pit where it's caught. Then after a while, I take the olives out and maybe crack them again, put them back and get another squeezing. Less grade olive, but exactly the same idea. You'll notice that you don't see these in every private home. You could not, as a private citizen, afford to buy one of these things. What that meant was that a town like this, the wealthier, whoever owned it, controlled the local population. Because if you had 10 olive trees, you'd have to use their press to get the olives pressed. And that's one way kings and lords and rulers exerted control over the local population. They managed the production instruments. So that's how olives are produced. And that oil, that was almost a religious thing because of its connection with the whole idea of anointing and of Messiah. We can honestly say that the olive tree, in many ways, for the Jewish community, was the messianic tree. Two reasons for that. One, because the Messiah, the word Mashiach, Messiah in Hebrew, means to be anointed with olive oil. Priests were anointed, uh, kings were anointed, prophets were anointed with some olive oil, indicating that they were gifted and called by God. So the Messiah, you say Jesus, was the one who was anointed in a special way. So since olive oil was used for anointing, it was the anointed one. The second thing about olive trees we've seen already, and that is when an olive tree gets old, they cut it down because there's too much trunk for the leaves. The following year, a new branch comes out of the old olive tree. And lo and behold, after a period of time, you've got a new olive tree and new fruit and lots of healthy branches. Now, God in the Old Testament compares the unbelieving nation of Israel to an olive tree. And he says, you didn't produce any fruit. But I was patient. I dug around you. I fertilized you. I, I kept you growing. And after a while, I looked. There's still no fruit. So God says, I cut you down. And then he says, behold, a new shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse. And will become a new olive tree with new fruit. Now, the Jewish community believed that that new shoot that was going to renew and restore and revitalize the nation of Israel in their mission was the Messiah. The Messiah is the shoot or branch out of Jesse. If Jesus is the branch, the stem, you, Paul says, as Gentiles, have been grafted in. That means your roots are the Jewish people. That's our stump. You can't exist and bear fruit without the Jewish roots. Second, it means Jesus is where you get your life and your energy. But the key is that the olives you produce. And Paul says if God cut down the natural tree, what do you think he would do to you who have been grafted in if you don't bear fruit? And along the same lines of the curse on Chorazin, you go back and you're going to suddenly realize, hey, I'm the branch, I'm supposed to be bearing the olives. God had the whole Jewish nation. For what reason? give me the life to bear fruit. Jesus came to be the new shoot. For what reason? So that I would have the life to bear fruit. Now the word for shoot in Hebrew is of the same root as the word Nazareth. Netzer. So the Bible says Jesus' parents went back to Nazareth in order that it might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Now a Nazarene is somebody from shoot town. Branch town. So Jesus came from Nazareth to indicate to us that he is the branch. Now let's set the stage with that for two things. 
Capernaum was a very typical Galilean town, and typically in a Galilean town like this, there would be a town square somewhere near the synagogue where people would congregate. First of all, imagine on a particular day, this Rabbi Jesus comes to his town, and he's teaching in the town square, and his disciples are there, that's his students, and they're all listening, and people are listening. Meanwhile, there are some parents who do what was a typically Jewish thing. They bring their children to be blessed by this important rabbi. Jesus' students are annoyed. They're probably annoyed about all the people gathered around to start with, because this is their faith lesson, after all. But they're annoyed that these parents would interrupt with these little kids. Don't you know this is important stuff for adults? And Jesus stops that. And he says, no, no, no. Let the children come. Bring them here. So they part the crowd, and here comes these little children. And he takes a little child on his lap. And he sits with a little child. And he says, unless you become like one of these, you can't have a share in the kingdom of heaven. Now that in that culture was an incredible saying because children, though they were loved and were important, didn't have any status. I think what Jesus was saying is, unless you give up your human status, unless you stop thinking of yourself as being important and become like one of these unimportant ones, you really don't understand the battle plan for the kingdom. What's the battle plan? Make me unimportant that I can minister to you. Make you unimportant that you can minister to each other. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, they ought to take a millstone. They ought to hang it around your neck. They ought to throw you in the sea. And remember what the sea meant. It's the power of evil. That's the abyss. They ought to throw you in the sea. Now, I appreciate how Jesus felt about the people with no status people who are unimportant. Whether that's the lowest member of your church, whether that's a little child, whether that's somebody in your school that nobody likes, I think that's what a little one is. And Jesus said, you cause one of those little ones to stumble in their faith. They ought to put one of these around your neck and they ought to throw you in there. And again, reinforcing that whole concept of, it's pretty serious business. As you read the Bible, always think about the images of Jesus' message. That's a children's sermon. Not a whole lot like the sermons we often hear or we often give from pulpits with lots of big, wonderful, flowery words. But let me tell you something. What Jesus said there in 30 seconds nails you right where it really hurts. Because you can see the child. You Can, can you imagine this around your neck? And there's the sea. That's the kind of a teacher he was. There's a second thing here. If we think of Jesus as the anointed one, the olive shoot, this pillar is called the olive press. We say Gethsemane. This is a Gethsemane. And its job is to squeeze out of the olive that very precious oil. And Jesus lived with Gethsemanes all his life. Maybe walked by these very Gethsemanes. They're old enough. Near the end of his life, after he'd been here for three and a half years, he took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi and he said to them, now, you go take on the gates of hell. And then as a great teacher, he said, let me show you how. 
down he walked to Jerusalem, past all these little cities and towns, past all of these crowds that had followed him around. He got to Jerusalem, and after a week's ministry there yet, at his last supper, and he went out to the garden of the olive press, the garden of Gethsemane. He got down on his knees, and he began to experience the weight of what was going to be laid on him. And the weight of that was so incredibly heavy that it squeezed out of him his own blood. He was heavily pressed. So here's the image. This Jesus who taught and preached and did miracles and raised the dead and all the things we've experienced went to the Garden of Gethsemane and laid on him was the sin of the entire world, including you. And that weight was so enormous that he said, God, please, take it away, but I'll do your will. The olives are Jesus. What is the weight? You. This is you. You are what squeezed out of Jesus, as it were, his own blood. I don't talk much about salvation yet, but I'd like to have you think about that. The fact that Jesus' message not only was be loving and meek and change the world, Jesus' message was it starts with you becoming my Gethsemane. And even if I had been the only one who ever sinned, Jesus would still have had to go. And he went to hell forever in six hours. For each person that will be in heaven. I think that's an incredible image that we need to see in his teaching along with his battle plan for the kingdom. Dear God, we stand here among very ancient pieces of equipment. Maybe Jesus saw these. We know he was here. We know he taught here. And he loved the people who lived here. In fact, he was one of them. I thank you for helping us to understand his Jewishness his teaching way. I thank you for helping to impress upon us the lesson of not causing other people to be weakened, to stumble because of our insensitivity or our lack of love. Thank you that he always loved those who were little. Most of all, I'm just grateful today that all our talk about kingdom and about confronting evil, that we discover that we're empowered to do that because you took on yourself the olive press the Gethsemane, the weight of my sin and the sins of each one of us. Thank you, Lord, that we are new and free and clean and not guilty. And now we want to be grafted in shoots to your olive tree with the stump of the Jewish people so that people would note a lot of fruit in our lives. Uh, I'm just going to put up the some of the discussion uh, question. 
um, and we can we can talk about that video. Uh, sin has an impact we can feel. Uh, we may feel guilty, wounded, or fearful because of sin, and we often describe those feelings as, uh, in physical terms, uh, such as being crushed, weighed down, or suffocated. Um, I don't know if anyone else feels differently about that. I, I remember reading a book in high school. It was a, about a guy that wanted to become a boxer, and he always talked about before every fight, he had this ball of ice in his stomach, and that's kind of how I think of it, that, that feeling. But um, what, what words would you guys use to describe what sin feels like? thinking about the draining um, this past spring I went to I'm in a men's group and we went to a, a weekend uh, kind of retreat where we did some work all together and it was it, it got very emotional um, just working on like past stuff and uh, the next day I remember we were all texting one another and we were like is anyone else exhausted and we were completely drained. And, and I, that, I think it was one of the first times in my life I had ever actually felt uh, that emotional about something. It was interesting. I was like, is there such a thing as emotional uh, hangover? Because that's very much what it was. It was like complete draining of, of emotion that it was like I just needed to rest all day. It was just like complete hangover. <laughs> I, I think I had a headache. I just was like out was interesting but yes I completely feel the the drained feeling <clears throat> but in contrast how how would you describe what it feels like to be forgiven back up I guess the feeling that you can breathe again yeah to think about that that I guess I, I wasn't thinking about the draining but with that weighing down that way that Gethsemane on Jesus was draining that oil of the all I mean you know and then pulling that off it's like you can 
breathe again. You can, you are ready to be filled. Um, and that, that book from high school, he always talked about, he would have that ball of ice in him, and then right before he'd go into the fight, it would melt, and it would just melt away, and he'd be ready to go uh, into that match. And that's kind of, a, I, I get this, uh, I kind of think of that whenever I think about that, that weight, that, uh, that feeling of being forgiven. Um, and it's always nothing of, of what you can bring about yourself. You can't bring that feeling about on your own. Um, which actually kind of leads to the next part. Uh, Caper Capernaum uh, was pretty much where Jesus started uh, and, and spent a lot of time in his ministry. Um, and actually, I kind of think it's amazing how he said there was only about a thousand people there. We, we have thir we average 1,300 people that come to Otter Creek on a Sunday morning. We have more people here than Capernaum did, and five apostles came from that area. Isn't, I, I feel like that's a little bit amazing. Um, that five men who worked with Jesus and impacted the world in such a way for over 2,000 years <laughs> was pulled out of a smaller group than this church. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, what, what, uh, what did you learn about the, the town that helps you better understand Jesus' pronouncement of the judgment when its people rejected his message um, and refused to repent? Did you guys notice anything in the video about that? <coughs> People that didn't totally track with his message might have heard that and thought, God, it's a troublemaker. You know, he comes into town, he does the stuff, and yay, whatever. Then he goes away, and then a few months later, or a year later, whatever, now he's like uh, condemning us. <laughs> just, just be quiet and make olives, man. You know, like, <laughs> I don't agree with anything. I'm just trying to think of like someone in that town that maybe just didn't follow the message. Like, how would they react to that? And like, completely went over their head. Kind right. of, yeah, yeah. Kind of made me nervous. Um, of course, Ray Ray even mentions, "I am, I am the Capernaum. I've seen it all. I, I know everything that that we should be doing." And I was actually talking to Betsy yesterday. I was I was actually kind of uh, struggling with that question just because. Um, the only way I could, I could make sense of what Jesus was saying was maybe, maybe that was Jesus' way of saying, you're not able to make this happen. You're not able to get out of this yourself. That's why I'm the one that has to go and be weighed down. I'm the one that has to be drained so that you guys won't get that, that rejection, that, that, that judgment on you. One thing I thought of is that, you know, when you say you don't bear fruit, you know, they cut you down. Or, you know, I guess I've always heard that as a way that I bear fruit or I'm separated. You know, you know there's forgiveness and you get back. And I guess the, the symbolism of the same tree comes back through another branch. Uh, you know, that that's. His way of kind of rebooting you is to cut you down. Mm -hmm. and not nothing, but back to the base. And, you know, that it's not like the tree's gone. It's that too much junk is going on or it's not working or whatever. You cut it back to just a stump. Mm -hmm. 
in the next um, still comes back. Yeah. Um, you know, it's relieving that even when you're torn down <coughs> completely, it's not completely. It's, it's still for our own good and kind of refocus and we start bearing fruit again. And it's a painful process to hit rock bottom. You still are, you still have your roots, but, or who you are, I guess, but it's painful to hit rock bottom, but then you start anew with a fresh outlook and you can start bearing fruit. Painful to cut off. I mean, yeah, cut off that part of your life. I, I often, <laughs> Betsy's probably heard me say this every time I say it, but I think of the, the one time, the Sunday that Josh showed that, that clip of the mission where Robert De Niro is going up the mountain carrying his armor as his penance uh, of shunning his old life. Or he, he, sorry if I'm giving the movie away, but he, he murders his own brother and he wants to become a priest. And, and he's carrying this whole giant thing of armor, gets up to the top, and eh, one, of the, one of the locals cuts it off of him and throws it in the river and he just sobs and I kind of think of that as this guy has his past and he enjoyed that past, he liked it that's how he, that's what he chose to do with his life and he realized that it ends up being more hurtful than it is helpful and he's finally willing to push that away and to cut that off and it's, it's hard, it's hard the whole process and it's hard to actually cut it off but I think about that with with that chopping down the tree, I mean, you're like, that's everything I've worked for. And I have to cut it off and start all over. Or at least not start all over from the roots. You still get to, to come up from those roots. <clears throat> what about the second question? Do you guys have any spiritual insights of, of the symbolism of the olive tree um, and what it means to you? <coughs> down the tree, I mean, I guess you can always kind of thought of it as a, it's sort of a threat, like, do good or I'm going to chop your tree down, you know, and, and maybe comparing that to the, us talking about what does forgiveness feel like, it, it, it's more of a flush away all the stuff, I mean, good, bad, or otherwise, but there's just stuff, there's all this, so, I guess, I don't know, I feel like there's this thread that I did not predict walking into the ring today, of, like, is, is sin is confusion and it's baggage and it's, it's history, good or otherwise, bad or otherwise, right? But it's all, and you, you can get just kind of caught up in that, like, oh, I didn't mean to do that, I should I know I shouldn't have done that, or I should have done this, or like, you know, you get oh, kind of wrapped up in all that stuff, and you just chop that tree down, right? And say, okay, well, okay, do away with that from today, like, the, a clarity that you can achieve, I think, from like today forward, how are you going to live in appreciation or joy, right, and, and mentally eject all of that negative and just kind of focus on in this moment forward as the new little shoot of the tree. And yeah, I think it's hard, but it's just, I was just thinking about, you know, you don't really live in an agrarian area in, you know, greater Nashville, and so the whole idea of pruning and Sarah and I were just talking about yesterday about our garage and how it 
really hard to get rid of it. Yeah. Uh, I've had this apple tree in our backyard that's produced a grand total of four apples in 10 years. <laughs> and, man, every year I'm looking at that thing going, you're done. I mean, I'm taking you down. And I just leave it hoping that next year, you know, maybe that fifth apple will come. <laughs> and so I say that because I think it's hard to get rid of get rid of things. Just, we, we have a tendency to accumulate things, stuff, patterns, behaviors, habits, and, you know, so I was thinking about the, the scriptures around, you know, can I cause you to sin, pluck it out, or the hand, you know, the fruit, radical things, but maybe to an agree in society that makes sense that you have to cut stuff away in order for new things uh, to grow. It's just so hard to cut stuff away. Um, I've got a plum tree that's kind of on the same level of my apple tree, that I'm trying to design it, right? you know, it's just hard to actually take the axe to the chainsaw or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I was thinking the same thing. Uh, I had a conversation with someone this week that just felt the call to end their, you know, not end their life, but end their life as they knew it, move and end their careers, and uh, you know, like try to adopt, and you know, all the all this other stuff. And fascinating to think of someone chopping down their own tree, you know, realizing, you know, having the self-awareness that, hey, this isn't working, so I'm just going to cut this down and move on and do something new. So that's, you know, that's obviously uh, from God, I think, especially if it does bear fruit, then you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, especially when you have you have the perspective of, of people you have a relationship with and you see that in their life. Like You see their tree in their backyard. You say, well, it's not doing any good, so why don't you just chop it down? Uh, and you might have a tree in your own backyard. I mean, it's always interesting when you think about another person's um, uh, situation. You think that's, it's not that big of a deal. You can be able to do that and, and cut that part out of your life or cut that down, and it'll come back. I mean, you'll be able to do something greater with that. But for some reason, when it's your own, it's so much harder to do it. Um, I remember my when I worked, I worked in an office at United Healthcare, and they were doing a downsizing, and I had this dread of being one of the people that was chosen to to be cut off. Uh, and I, but when I thought about my coworkers that were leaving, I was like, it's not that big of a deal. You'll just you'll find a new job. I mean, it's not it's nothing. It's not it's you know job search for a few months. But when I thought about it for myself, it was terrifying. Saying all that, you know, just keep thinking, you know, if you do something to me, I can forgive you a whole lot easier than I forgive myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you're a bad example. Maybe I'm fine. But, you know, your, your symbolism of the, the armor being cut off is how many people do we see in our lives that if they just let go and realize they've been forgiven, how much freer they can live. Um, and you see decisions looming forever. You know, they just they can't get past it. And, you know, and so it's easy, like you said, it's easy for us to see that in other people and kind of just kind of let go of it. And, you know, you, know, you, you can't go back and change it. 
you got to move forward and become better from that and realize you're the only one holding you accountable to that. You're the only one still holding on to that sin, problem, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it is so much easier to see that from outside and to say, yeah, 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 I know that, but I can't do it. Surround yourself with people that are going to help point that kind of stuff out to you in the right way. But it's also important to recognize when you're pointing out, just cut cut loose of that. How how much of that we need to hear ourselves? Because you you have junk that you've got to deal with. And how do you move beyond that so that junk doesn't hold you back? And it's I think of that often. It's a whole lot easier for me to help somebody else recognize not to say what they need to do but to actually do it but I'll, for me I want to take care of that stuff myself and I, I got to figure out a way to wrestle with it before I can let go of it <coughs> when you look at other people it's, you know, there's other people looking at us saying the same thing why didn't you just let go of that and, and move on you can, have, you can bear more food if you would that reminds me of uh some costs in business, you know, in the business clients, as they say, get it, just throw it over your shoulder and keep going. But in life, it's, it's so tough to chop down the palm tree or chop down the apple tree or something like your garage or whatever it is. And uh, it's just it's part of the way God made us, but it's, it's difficult to throw out even the smallest thing that might have value, even if it's yeah. I was thinking of just the idea that in order to get the good stuff out of the olive, it has to be pressed. It seems like so often <coughs> we try, or I, I would try to think, just let nothing bad happen. You know, let, let me just get through my There's nothing bad. First of all, that's just not how life works. But when bad things happen, it's this opportunity for God to step in. But, but pressing is it's powerful. Um, <clears throat> I'd always heard. Uh, a nice saying for people is uh, the best time the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the second best time is now uh, <laughs> it's it's a nice saying but it, it's something that you always think about like yeah you might as well do that now um, there's never gonna I was talking to Michael Stanford you guys know him he, he led worship at camp this year and I was talking to him I was like how how ready do you feel for ministry and he's like you never feel, you're always going to feel like you're not ready enough. Um, and I, I, it's a very encouraging thing to hear because there's never a better time than, than right then to do it. You might be put into an awkward situation or uncomfortable situation, but that's, that's okay. Um, getting to, me and Dan are covenant group leaders with some guys, and, and I think something that's encouraging for them to learn is the fact that ministry gets awkward. It gets weird. It feels it feels uncomfortable, and that's okay. It should, because that's that's what ministry is. 
But uh, we are out of time. Thank you guys uh, for coming today. Uh, take some banana bread with you, please. <laughs> All right. We will see you guys next week. Yeah, way back in the day. Where, where? <laughs>